Hello and welcome. I'm Michael Banks, and this is Heroic Journeys from Crisis to Transformation, a show where my guests talk about how they went through hard times, learned a lot, and emerged as happier, better, wiser human beings. And so uh, my guest today is Carmen Netta. Is that, that's how you pronounce it, isn't it? Yes, Carmen. Michael. <laughs> I never asked her that question before. The fa- she's the founder and host of the Immigrant's Journey podcast. Carmen is a fourth-year psychology student, a lifelong immigrant originally from Brazil, uh, grew up illegally in Chicago, and is now an Irish citizen living in Dublin. So, quite a journey. And uh, so, welcome, Carmen. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. A yeah. pleasure to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. So, um, your series, your podcast series theme is about immigrant journeys and the sort of struggles, challenges, and the triumphs that, um, that emerge from their journey. Um, does this theme come from your own experience? Is this why you chose to do this uh, podcast series? And what is the purpose of your series? definitely comes from my own experience like not everyone that immigrates has such dramatic things happen like living in a country with no status being somewhere illegally that puts a lot of barriers in terms of you succeeding and integrating into a society so not everybody has that immigrant experience but i think everyone struggles when they go into a new environment whether it be getting on with new people, the culture shock, making friends, putting yourself out of your comfort zone. So I think there's loads that we can learn from each other, from sharing these experiences. We can see what overlaps in terms of our struggles. And then we can see where we're unique and where our cultures are unique. So I think it's, it's really interesting stories to be shared. So yeah. that's why I'm doing it. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating, isn't it? Um, I know that you're originally from Brazil. Um, I actually, uh, my partner's s- sister-in-law uh, was, is also Brazilian and uh, for a p- they live in California and for a period of time, um, she came over to live in England with her English husband, my partner's brother. And uh, she had a very, 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 very difficult time being Brazilian in this part of England. Um, and after three years, they left. Oh, wow. It's so difficult. Um, was her difficulty rooted in cultural differences or just the practicalities of getting legal in the country? No, it was cultural differences. It was all oh, about wow. the degree to which people did not accept her or embrace her because of oh, her that's... color, her, you know, the fact she was South American, Brazilian, uh, and so on. Um, you, know, we, you know, this part of the country where she stayed is, is very rural, there's a lot of older people and um, there's, there's a kind of a conservative with a small C sort of population, mm. except for the city, which is younger than average and very progressive. But out in the country, it's a bit uh, conservative. Wow. I yeah. want to talk to her now because that sounds absolutely fascinating. Like when I first moved to Ireland, I moved to Kilbaggan, County Westmeath, and it doesn't really get smaller than that. But I never found any resistance, and maybe because I'm fluent in English, and I find that a lot of people who come with an accent, they have a different reception than people who have either a British accent or an American accent, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So maybe that is part of it anyway. But no, I'd be fascinated to speak with her. Yeah, that's, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can uh, you know, sort that one out for you. Um, cool. Yeah, great. So tell me about your journey from Brazil to now. I mean, I mean, in five minutes, in your five minutes. Holy crap. Okay, I actually can give an abridged version of this, and you can stop and ask for more detail as I go along. So my family went to the United States when I was seven years old, and I come from a conservative Christian background, and most of the people that I was associating with would have been from the church. So in terms of integration and getting um, to know American culture, there was a lot of isolation, both because we socialized with people of the same faith, but also because there was always this worry of, we're not supposed to be here. So there was this kind of like, eh, don't get involved with outsiders too much. Don't say too much because you never know who's going to 
want to deport you. So there's always that kind of like heavy burden looming. Um, growing up in Chicago was okay. I mean, I don't recall it being any different to Brazil. That said, being seven years old, like you don't really absorb much of your surroundings. Like I come from Porto Alegre, which is in the south of Brazil. It's a city as well. Um, it's, in, it's a heavily populated city. I suppose is one city environment to another for me. I remember what was really difficult was not being able to speak the language when I got there because I was always a chatter. Since I learned to speak, I was always tech, 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 tech. And then that really kind of shut me down. I can see my pictures that my parents have from when I was in Brazil to like my first year in the United States. Like in Brazil, it was all like smiley, you know, you know, very kind of festive little child. And then all of a sudden it's like, really straight, really austere, like, oh my God, where am I? What's going on here? I did pick up the language within, I don't know, eight months or so, but the first few months, it was really isolating. That's what I remember about that period of time. And then we stayed with my grandmother. So my mom's family had already been there. So that was the connection. That was the link to move there. So my mom's parents had gone to Brazil when she was uh, a child. So she had her status from childhood. She had gone back to Brazil to go to boarding school, met my dad. And the process to become legal is really, really long, especially if you're applying as the uh, spouse of a resident as opposed to the spouse of a citizen. So my dad didn't want to wait to go through all the channels. So we just went. So we snuck in through the border of Mexico before obviously before 9-11, um, but it was a lot how, easier. How do you do that? How do you, well, I'm always fascinated, people s snuck through the border. What, did you do it on foot? Did you do it crouching in darkness? Or? So, so my mom's brother had met us in Mexico. So we traveled from Brazil to Mexico, and in Mexico, my uncle had driven across the border. We all got in the car with him. He sat in the driver's seat. He had his driving license and we literally crossed through the normal border and just said, yeah, we came over just to visit for the day. And like, we didn't have massive luggages with us or anything. And they're just like, yeah, okay. They just checked my uncle's ID. My uncle was born in the United States. So he sounds like a native. And that was that. Mm. Easy. No hassle at all. Easy peasy. It's not that way anymore. I don't know what's going to happen with that country with the wall and all that, but mm. that's the way it was in the late 1980s. So then living in the United States with no status put a stopper in terms of what I could do as far as education. So you had to have a social security card. I did not have one of those. And so that, well, it was two reasons why I didn't go to high school. So I, I only went to elementary school. So wow. what, is, what is it here? Um, primary school. Yes. Primary so I was only... Yeah. So initially I was only educated, there's massive gaps in my education, but I'm so happy to be in university now, you have no idea. Um, so I was not to go to high school for two reasons, the social security card thing, and that summer I had gotten caught smoking weed with my friend in the back of the house. And my dad is like, nope, schools, these kids are corrupting you, you're not gonna go there, my, that, that's it, you're gonna be homeschooled. <laughs> So the idea was to get a homeschooling curriculum that was affiliated with my church. So there was no maths in this. There was no science in this. It, the history was really like religious history. But unfortunately, so my dad has antisocial personality disorder. So he was not able to sustain jobs because he would get into fights with people. He always had the issue that he wasn't legal, but his brother-in-laws and you know, the rest of my mom's family always try to help him get jobs, but it would always come down to him having problems getting along with others. So it ended up the situation that he was the stay-at-home dad and my mom, because she had her paper, she worked and provided for us. So my dad was meant to homeschool me. My father, unfortunately, has absolutely no discipline. So what happened after about three months, there was no more checking that assignments were being done, that anything was being submitted. And once you register with the system saying that your child is being pulled out of school to be homeschooled, that's it. Like you're off the grid. So there's no further checks. I don't know if that has changed, but that's what it was in my situation. And I suppose my parents were believed to be off the grid just because of our dodgy status. So during my teenage years, my education was pretty much 
Bible and church. So it was a very cloistered existence. And it wasn't until my early 20s, well, it wasn't until I was 21 that I found this. I'm not going to go into details because I don't want to get people in trouble, but I've got, I found a way around the system to get a social security number. And then through Photoshop, we'll say, um, I was able to produce a social security card with that legitimate number. So that enabled me to get a driving license and that enabled me to apply for a GED course. So GED is the general education diploma that people can get if they don't finish high school, but they want to go to college. So I applied for the GED. It's normally a course that you have to study for a year and then you go and you pass a test. And once you have the diploma, then you can apply for a college, not a good college, but you can apply for something. And that's really all that I ever wanted to do is I wanted to study. I wanted to further my education, but there was problems with that as well. So at the time I would, I started to date this fellow who's originally from Poland and he was a American legal resident uh, we have eventually ended up getting married, but that's a whole other story. Actually, that's a whole other podcast, the marriage portion of it. But um, at the time that I had met him, my parents were splitting up. So my parents split up shortly after I moved out of the house. Um, I actually didn't know until about a year after my parents split up. I was speaking to my ex-landlord's daughter and she had a conversation with my mom about my mom moving out of the family home saying that me leaving gave her the strength to leave too but like i never had that conversation with my mom and it was in that moment that i realized wow i'm not really connected to my mother and that made me really sad because the truth is that i wasn't because she was always out working and when she was at home, she was doing chores. She was basically trying to keep herself as busy as possible to avoid my father's abuse, pretty much like we were all doing. You know, it's very difficult to deal with somebody that has antisocial personality disorder because they're highly emotionally volatile. They lack empathy to um, a high degree. They can be violent. They can certainly be verbally abusive. Um, my father had a very external locus of control in that that's like a psychological term. It just means that whenever things are happening to you, it's always everybody else. There's no internal ownership and accountability. There's no sense of I can do something to change my fate. So I kind of grew up with that kind of level of negativity and it's always something else. Although, and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm questioning if there's a biological component to this because as far as my environment was, uh, <clears throat> as far as my environment was, I had every reason to think that things were happening to me and that I had no control. But there was something inside me that I always felt like, no, I can do something, I can figure it out. I just didn't know exactly what I was doing just because of my limited knowledge and my limited network, like my limited social network. Because in the church environment, you don't, if you're having problems in your home, you don't talk about it to anyone. You just have to deal with it yourself. So there's a lot of repression. There was a lot of suffering that went on in silence. And there's really no support when things go wrong. It was, kind of, it was a very false environment because everybody met up in church and everybody pretended like everybody was fine, even though people were hurting. Some people were dealing with situations of abuse, of violence, and there was no space for that to be discussed because that would bring shame, very shame-driven type of theology. I'm not saying that all religious people have that, but certainly the more fundamentalist ones do. Like even in conversations that I've had with friends from other religions, but who have had that fundamentalist background, it's the same thing about shame and silencing anything that doesn't portray people in the best light, even though if that's not the reality, still doesn't matter. You shut up and you put on a happy face because as a community, we want to project a certain thing. And if what your experience contradicts that, screw you and your experience, you have to uphold the community. There's a lot of that, which is unfortunate and it's not talked about. 
Well, it's interesting. If I can just uh, come in there, Carmen. Of I course. Think Please do. <laughs> that uh, a couple of things, really. One is it sounds like if you put together your different, the different aspects of your circumstance at that point in your life, uh, you really didn't have much support to uh, be able to express yourself. You had the religious uh, suppression, if you like. Uh, you had your father's uh, condition. Um, and then you were also, in a sense, isolated as well because you were being homeschooled. Um, but, and yet you weren't even being... So in other words, this, this was a tough set of circumstances for you to then take responsibility for your own transformation. Uh, and moving forward. Would you say well, that's correct? I would say that's partially correct. I didn't okay. think in terms of taking responsibility for my circumstance. The word responsibility didn't factor into my okay. thinking because the word responsibility wasn't a thing in my environment. You know what I mean? Um, what I felt was that my circumstance was unbearable and I will do whatever it takes to get myself out of there. So because I grew up observing my parents' interaction and the way that my father never supported my mother, either emotionally or financially, and also because of the way that my father suffocated her and us and tried to repress us, I really had a bad chip on my shoulder that I'm never going to be controlled by anybody and that you can never rely on a man. So... When I was 21, I had the opportunity to work as a stripper. I'm like, this is my route to financial freedom and never having to rely on anyone. I didn't want just, I was in a relationship at the time, but I'm like, he's doing well, but I never want to put myself in a position where I depend on him. I want to have my own money. I, if, if whatever goes down, I want to be with somebody because I like this person because this person contributes to my life and I contribute to their life. I don't want to be with somebody for bullshit reasons, like we got kids together or there's some kind of financial motivation. And the other thing that happened, I'm the eldest of two boys and I'm quite a bit older than the other two. So I had to be a mother to them to a certain extent because my mom always being out of the house and my father not being a stable person, uh, we had a very, very close relationship. So also the other thing that happened in my early 20s is I felt like I've already experienced motherhood. I've already experienced that level of responsibility. So I really didn't want kids. Um, so that kind of set, I don't know, that has impacted how I deal with relationships, the kid factor. But that's, that's also another uh, conversation, I suppose. So then once I got my GED done, um, I realized that I was not going to be able to go to college in America because it's unaffordable. If you don't have to be trying to go to an Ivy League school, you know, you don't have to be trying to be a doctor or a lawyer. It's absolutely unaffordable if you come from a working class or poor background. So at the time, um, my boyfriend and I had then gotten married. There's so much that happened in between finishing GED and getting married. I got married when I was 23. But what we both figured out is that there's better opportunities in Europe. So his best friend had been living in Ireland um, for a few years at the time. This was back in 2006. And he's like, why don't you come here? There's loads of jobs. School here is totally affordable. You guys can really set up your life well here. So like, grand. So that's what we did. So when I moved to Ireland, I moved as a spouse of an EU citizen. So that was me immediately sorted in terms of being legal and getting my GNIB card. So that would be like the equivalent of the American green card. And then after the economy tanked in the United, uh, sorry, in um, Ireland, uh, we both, me and my husband both lost our jobs and he kept going back to the United States for work. And that kind of deteriorated our relationship um, and so we separated, he stayed there, I stayed here, but I had been living here long enough where I could apply for citizenship. So I did. And then once I became an Irish citizen, I'm like, I'm going to put an application to go to college because college is free in this country. If you're a citizen and you're broke, which I've ticked both boxes. So then I was able to, um, enroll in a psychology course in DCU. So that's how I 
weaved the path from being an illegal immigrant in the United States to uh, third level education in Europe. And so now you're totally legal. <laughs> totally. I have the passport and everything. Can't take it away from me. Uh, does, that, does that feel like a relief? Oh my God, it feels amazing. I nearly cried in my, uh, what was it? It's the um, citizenship ceremony because I felt really emotional. Like it's been, it had been such a struggle for so long. And now it's like, yes, I'm in, I'm allowed to be here. I have a passport. I can imagine. I really can. And you know, it's great. You're, you're actually a citizen of Ireland, not England or UK rather. Yes. You're, and you're that's an great. And, and it's funny you should say that because back in 2007, it was our long-term plan to end up in the UK. So initially, I, so when we first moved here and all the jobs were good, I was working for solicitors. And at the time, I wanted to be a solicitor myself. So I started to study law through the Open University. So it was an online course. So I'm like, yeah, this is great. If we're going to end up in England, I might as well learn English law. So I did that for two years, but then the economy tanked, lost the jobs, couldn't continue the course. And by the time I was able to get back into third level education, so much had happened that I'm like, I might as well um, study psychology because I feel like I need to wrap my head around myself. <laughs> Sometimes we can be more than we can handle. And having that deeper level of understanding is really, really useful. So I feel like going back to college has really helped me get control of my substance use issues. So I became an alcoholic. Well, I started drinking when I was 19. It was kind of like an on off again, binging, etc. But it became really bad when the economy crashed and I had no job and I was isolated again. And my husband was in a different country and I was still in the church at that time. This is before I had lost my faith. So I was really, really down and I didn't know what to do. I literally didn't know what to do. So I just drank the pain and frustration and loneliness away and I developed a problem, a real physiological dependency problem as a result of that. But it wasn't until college that I found the strength and motivation to start dealing with it because you can't memorize complex information on a hangover. Like that's just not going to happen. <laughs> so that was a very positive thing. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, I have another question here for you, which is, uh, could you talk to me about a time in your life when you had uh, uh, an aha moment, you know, sort of light bulb, a kind of uh, a moment when things change for you quite significantly. Can you describe a moment like that that you had? Sure, I've actually had a few. Um, one aha moment was when I realized that the devil is probably a figment of people's imagination. I just started to think about the characteristic that people put on this big supervillain arch nemesis of God and the so-called supernatural happenings that people describe. So people describe things moving around the house, things getting banged around, temperatures changing. And it's like, these are parlor tricks. Like why would a super being who's the nemesis of another super cosmic being be bothering mere monkey mortals with the silliness? I'm like, this cannot possibly be what it is. I do definitely believe in evil, but I don't believe in the caricature version, devil, Bible story version of it. I think the devils and the gods are humans. We are the ones that do evil and terrible things to each other. We are the ones that do kind-hearted, amazing, altruistic things for one another. And I think what's written in our holy books, it's, um, it's a grand story. They're grand narratives of human patterns of behavior. And I think we personify our best characteristics through the image of a god or gods and we personify our worst most horrific qualities in the character of a devil so that's what i think is going on there but i remember what kind of got my brain trickled down that path of thinking was just realizing for an amazing being like doing these silly things and these hauntings like this does not make any kind of sense so that was one aha moment the other aha moment I had when, was when I was reading 
The Righteous Mind by evolutionary psychologist Jonathan Haidt, which is a fantastic book. If anybody's listening, get it. It's really interesting. But his uh, work has been through understanding, trying to understand human morality through an evolutionary perspective. And the different that there is, there are biological bases, bases, a base, uh, sorry, my apologies, is a biological basis for being conservative <clears throat> and being liberal. And once that clicked with me, like we're not evil, we're like what one side isn't better than the other. It just gave me so much more understanding and patience and empathy for people that think differently than me. And I found that really refreshing and relieving. But he makes a fa he's got really good TED talk um, about this very subject on the internet, which is certainly worth listening to. But that was another aha moment for me. So, so that's interesting. Uh, you uh, talked about the biological uh, differences between liberal and conservative people. Mm -hmm. um, can you elaborate on that a little bit, just so that we can understand? Because um, it sounds my first reaction to what you just said is that, uh, wait a minute, there are certain fundamentals. I mean, human beings have responsibility for behaving whichever way they want and they choose yes. whichever way they want. And we're not di dictated to by um, our biological makeup. We can transcend that. Um, we, can uh, we can transcend it to an extent, but there are influences that come to play when we are born. So, for example, Jonathan Hyde talks about the moral palette. So the moral palette concerns, uh, uh, includes concerns for five dimensions of morality. So one is fair and harm. The other one is liberty. The other one is loyalty. The other one is sanctity. And the other one is authority. Now, people care about these things to varying degrees. Um, he equates it to like uh, an equalizer on a stereo where some parts of the sounds can be turned up and down. But in general, so there's structural differences between the brains of, believe it or not, between the brains of liberal and conservative people. But for liberal people, they generally care much more about fairness and harm and liberty than they do about sanctity and authority or loyalty. So that kind of puts a divide in terms of what we prioritize. It's not that conservatives don't care about liberty. It's not that um, liberals don't care about loyalty, but there's a, there's a, we prioritize things differently and therefore we have conflict. But the good news is that we can learn from each other's differences, but that doesn't seem to be happening in America. And I hope <laughs> but it's true. I mean, this is fascinating because uh, I've worked for many, many years in uh, coaching corporate leaders and their teams and managers and so on. And um, I've used many, various types of psychometrics. And of course, one of them is the, the old chestnut, the classic Myers-Briggs, which has been around for 80 years or more, as you know, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, there you've got, for example, the difference between people who are wired, if you like, from birth for their whole life. They're wired in a certain way to, for example, be uh, structured, organized, on time, etc. And then there's um, at the other extreme, there are those people who are wired to be sort of go with the flow in the moment, spontaneous and all the rest of it. And that can create some big conflict, uh, especially Absolutely. in relationships. And but. At the same time, it is possible to, to be flexible and to exhibit and, and try out and actually practice behaviors on the other end of the spectrum. Exactly. Uh, uh, and so I think, tell me if I'm wrong here, but what you're suggesting is that the, because uh, I'm, I'm not a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither am I. <laughs> but but, but, but um, what you're suggesting is that, you know, it doesn't mean that conservatives are bad human beings it means that they just put an emphasis and a priority on certain aspects like you mentioned yeah priority um but again i mean thank goodness that we can go into shades of gray here or rather the if you break it down the complexity that you know a liberal might say well there's nothing wrong with authority however there is something wrong with authority that that in action is uh um bullying or in or dict dictatorial or you know that's, oppressive yeah so um so it's 
I'm pleased that we're talking about this a little further. Otherwise, I was going to make a large judgment about this this Jonathan Haidt guy. But, uh, <laughs> actually, I'm going to I'm going to send you the link to his TED talk when we're done speaking here because you'll really enjoy it. Like he explains it so much better than That'd I just did. But it, but it's it's definitely worth giving a listen to. Um, he's been working on this with his colleagues for years, and he has a lot of data. And he shows how across different countries and different parts of the world, people are the same in terms of their range, in terms of how they are uh, with the moral palette. And I think it takes a bit of pressure off people to know that you know what, a person is different from you, not because they're a giant asshole and because they're trying to make things difficult for you. It's just, they just think differently than you do. They prioritize differently. And I think there's so much richness to be gained in understanding and discussing what these differences are and why, rather than just being immediately defensive and seeing the other person as the bad guy. At the end of the day, we're all human beings. And we all have the re our reasons for doing and saying and thinking what we do, but we can only get better if we give each other the space to be human and to speak. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> say, say that to the American people. <laughs> say, say that to the people on the left and the people on the right. There are some people in public spaces now that are actually doing their best to do that. Jonathan Haidt is one of them. Yeah. Um, David Rubin is another one. There's, there's a few of them, and hopefully it will spread more and more because that's what people need. People need dialogue, not yelling over CNN or Fox News. It's like, Jesus Christ, please yeah. stop. I totally agree. It's one of my favorite topics, but I won't uh, carry on myself here. This is about you. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so, you know, given the, uh, the podcast, my podcast series is about crisis to transformation, uh, through a, a heroic journey and heroic journey, which is which I'm not sure. I think it's oh, yeah, good. Good. yeah, that's right. I think it's, it's Anne. And heroic. Uh, anyway, um, besides the pedantry of being grammatically correct, um, <laughs> uh, this heroic journey, I mean, I view the, I think every single human being is on a heroic journey to some degree or another, because you know you can't avoid going through tough times at, at various times in your life. Uh, there's yeah. just degrees of that, degrees of challenge, but also just the nature of life itself. It's tough to get through. Exactly. You know, it's just tough having a, a physical body for starters. <laughs> So, um, so I do genuinely think that we're all on hero a heroic journey and in terms of your journey and, uh, uh, if you like the crisis, you've already talked about crises that you've mm -hmm. had and you experienced, you've got through those. Can you tell me also, uh, about a time when, or a period of your life where you experienced a really major failure or crisis? that really taught you a significant lesson about yourself? Um, probably my divorce. I would say that was a major failure. And it started in a time, like the divorce started with the marriage, if I'm being honest. So I got married for religious reasons. So, so this is what happened. Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me go back a little That's bit amazing. in time. So I was raised with this fundamentalist religion when I got to my late teens, I rebelled feeling like God is pointless. God doesn't care. There's nowhere to go for help and understanding. I'm going to do my own thing. But I never stopped believing in God. So I was dating my husband. And after about four and a half years, we broke up. And well, to be accurate, I broke up with him. And when I did, he was absolutely devastated. And I felt super, super guilty. He wanted to stay in contact. So we did. And during the time that I broke up with him, also his grandmother died, who had raised him. So that was another deep emotional blow. And he had lost his business because he was part of a franchise and it ended up going bust. So like everything happened within the space of a week or two for him. We were just like his whole world was turned upside down and put into chaos. He was devastated, drinking a lot. And at that time, some Jehovah's Witnesses came over and knocked on his door and wanted to talk to him about God. And he was so down and so desperate. He's like, yeah, what the fuck, go on. And he liked their spiel. And that started to give him a bit of hope 
in structure in his life after months of obliterating himself with alcohol. So I kept on, I kept contact with him. And then when I saw that positive change in him, I'm like, great, I want to encourage this because obviously I care about this person, even though the relationship didn't work out. I don't want him to, you know, harm himself or become a full-time alcoholic or any such thing. So I started to encourage him in his religious pursuits and his involvement with the Jehovah Witness Church. And then he was like, well, why don't you come to some meetings with me? So I'm like, oh, I'm not fucking interested, but I don't want to discourage him. So I ended up getting sucked back into it because I had never stopped believing in God. I just rebelled. So I got um, sucked back into it. But theologically, I came from a different school of thought. So I, my family was Seventh-day Adventist. So we had a different way of interpreting the Bible. So inevitably, got into debates with the elders in the church and the people that were visiting us to talk to us about the Bible. And then I'm like, I think that my church has a better take on its biblical interpretation. Because that was my mind back then. So I'm like, why don't you come to the church that I was raised in? So then we transitioned, we became Seventh-day Adventists. And so I decided that the correct thing to do by God was to get married because I was close to this person, I loved him, and I knew that he wanted to be with me. Apart from religious thinking and religious influence, I had never, me, myself as a person, wanted marriage. So that was the beginning of me being inauthentic to myself. So I was sacrificing what was true inside of me for the idea of this greater good and this higher being. So that was the beginning of the problem. So then towards the end of our relationship, when I had lost my faith, my marriage no longer made sense. I'm like, I got married because of God. I have been unhappy in this marriage for X amount of time, the logical thing is clearly to end it. So I did, and it was horrible. And he was equally hurt the second time around as the first time. And what I learned in that experience is you have to be honest with yourself straight away and you have to be honest with your partner straight away prolonging it i remember in your interview with helen you were talking about how you delayed being honest because you didn't want to hurt the other person i had the same kind of thinking you are not sparing the other person pain when you delay so that's really what i learned from that experience so i at least that mistake i never did again when something felt not true for me said it straight away yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's absolutely, I think you probably speak for thousands, millions of people. Um, it is one of the toughest lessons in life, isn't it? To, to act on what you know to be true in the moment. And that takes a lot of courage often because there's always a fear attached to not act, you know, around and a rationale to, as to why you shouldn't act on what you know to be true why you should yeah. there's a fear around you know, being authentic and exactly. usually that um you know i don't know what it was in your case well it was probably you uh, was it about your fear that you would really upset and hurt and devastate your husband or or what well, so during the time that i was still a believer my reason for not being authentic is because it wasn't allowed that i would upset god so I was sparing God's feelings at that stage. Wow. And then, so then once I lost my faith, then it was like, well, I don't want to hurt him. But it didn't take me that long the second time around as it did the first time. So like the first time that we broke up, I probably knew in my heart for a year before I broke the news to him in a very bad way because I ended up cheating. So... And yet you were afraid of, of definitely a, a factor in it for not doing it, for leaving it. It was the fear that you would, apart from God, <laughs> upsetting God, uh, but it was also a fear that you would really hurt him as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, carry on. It's, it's just completely wrong-headed thinking. 
because it, I mean, it, in, we don't do this at the time, but all you have to do is reverse the roles. If you knew your partner was no longer happy to be your partner, would you want them to pretend for five seconds? No, you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. You would rather take the pain. Well, I wouldn't. I would rather take the pain and hurt of hearing, I'm sorry, I'm not happy. I want to leave versus someone grinning and bearing my presence. Oh, that's so cringe. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, what you say is, I think, extremely helpful for people to hear. Because when you flip it around like that, it's true. Uh, you wouldn't want to have a partner who doesn't want to be with you anymore. Uh, and of course, probably the big, the big, uh, the big person, if you like, uh, is able to say, "You're not happy," um, or "Bless you." I don't even mean this in a religious. Bless you. Yeah, Go yeah. Well, well, into the into your future, because if you're not happy with me then uh, you deserve to be happy somewhere else or with someone else. Yeah. Um, and the trouble is, of course, <laughs> it doesn't usually work out like that. Nope, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so, so, so how did you feel afterwards when you'd done this? Did you feel liberated? And, and how was he in, in the end? Was it a better thing for him that that happened or what? We are really good friends today. So in the long term, it worked out great. Like my first podcast, that's him that I'm interviewing. It's my ex-husband. So we chat all the time and um, we've been able, because this is the thing, throughout the 10 years that we were together, we really built a strong friendship. So yeah, I didn't want to be his wife anymore, but I still, lo I still love him. You know what I mean? I just yes. don't want to be his partner. How powerful is that? How wonderful. If you're talking about crisis into transformation, that truly is. An amazing story and thank you for sharing that that's uh no but that's credit to him as well because yeah that's yeah i have to give him i have to give credit where credit is due he's a very open-hearted and open-minded person even though he could be very emotional and volatile and it was difficult to break up and seeing him in pain was really really wrenching yeah. um he's still the type of person that can see the value in something and get over the hurt that a certain experience caused and just salvage the good that is worth salvaging. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what, uh, you know, that's what one can do when it is tough is to salvage. I like the way you said that salvage the good that can come out of it. So we've got a, a few minutes left and um, I wanted uh, I wanted to, you actually sent me some topics that you'd, uh, most like to talk about in the conversation. Okay. And uh, I'm going to read them out. And I'd like you to make a choice as to if you can, um, the topic that you would most like to spend a few minutes talking about. I'm curious about all of them to hear your views. Um, so the topics are living illegally, religion, starting over, building and keeping meaningful relationships and self-knowledge. Of those fives, what stands out as the one you'd most like to share your thoughts about definitely not religion because that's a 10-hour conversation um <laughs> oh, <laughs> my, I I was gonna, you're gonna go to that one i was gonna enjoy it's that. one of it's one of my favorite ones but it's 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 a frustrating one to get started and then cut off you know five minutes later it's a long conversation sure and with me as well i would definitely have <laughs> i have so much to say <laughs> okay. um so i think I will focus on starting over and building and keeping meaningful relationships. Okay. And that, which also ties into self-knowledge. So like starting over for me is something that I've had to do repeatedly. I had to start over, like when I lost my faith, I had to start over in terms of reconstructing my worldview, my self-view. Um, everything that I thought about life and how the world worked was wrapped around um, the religion. And so when that was, I remember the first time I said to myself aloud, I don't believe in God. I cried. I was really upset because I'm like, well, what am I now? Because when that's your whole world and now it's just like, so I was just devouring books after that. And I suppose now I would consider myself a secular humanist would probably be the most accurate way to describe where my moral framework sits. But really, my, I, had to st I had to start the development 
of my worldview of morality over again. So now it's a bit of a conglomeration between, I've definitely salvaged good things from the religious background. So I haven't, I don't feel like I've completely thrown the baby out with the bathwater. But now it's a mixture of some things that come from Christianity, some things that come from philosophy, some things that come from just reasoning and science. So that took um, effort. I had to cram a lot of knowledge into my head to figure out what now makes sense to me. And so I think part of starting over is a process of bathing yourself with knowledge, just seeing the parts of your thinking, um, because you become aimless. When you lose something, when you lose a relationship, when you lose faith, when tragedy happens, you're thrown into chaos. And the antidote to overcome that is to start finding meaning and direction in your life. And in order to find something to aim for, you need to know what's happening. You need to be wide open and see what is worth putting my time and effort into. So there's like a refractory period where you just have to expose yourself to knowledge. So that's the step in starting over that um, I've had to do repeatedly. So in the religious context, in the loss of the marriage context, um, in terms of the economy tanking and me losing my direction and my focus with the law studies and stuff. So I've had to do that several times, but that's really the process. Just chill and just consume information until you can start finding your new aim and your new meaning, because unless you have that, it's so easy to start hitting the self-destruct button. Yeah. Well, for me, it is. No, no, no. I, I think a lot of people could relate to what you're saying. I mean, um, I really like what you're saying is about finding a direction, which means also finding meaning and purpose. I agree completely. I mean, you, without that, it's very hard to, to have a full and fulfilling life. And, uh, and yeah, you're right. You can go off the, off the tracks quite easily. I can vouch for that myself. Um, <laughs> but this is not about me. <laughs> it's about you. Um, so that's great. That's very helpful to hear that. Um, I like what you're saying about being open to, to knowledge and information when you're in that. I had a teacher once who used to call it the, the neutral state. That once mm. you, you've hit the wall, there's something, everything has fallen apart or blown up. And then you go into this sort of neutral state, but it's okay. It's good. It means you're getting pregnant with something. Yes. And, and he used to say, well, you know, when you're in the neutral straight, straight, run a really nice bath and put lots of nice stuff in it, light some candles and just chill out and listen to some good music. And don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. But in that neutral state, just enjoy the fact that you're, something's percolating away. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? That makes total sense. Don't panic because you don't know what the next steps are. The next steps will be made clear the more you just absorb and take in more knowledge and experiences. And then the other aspect of uh, starting over would be building and keeping meaningful relationships. Nobody's an island. Good, healthy friendships with people that support and love you is everything. And that's genuinely what has gotten me through the darkest times. That's that's also very interesting because uh, from my own uh, in my own story, when I lost everything, you know, I had my financial meltdown, marriage went, business went, everything went, um, and I had to start over. And the blessing in disguise was the fact that I discovered or rediscovered, actually, probably more than ever before, discovered the value of community, uh, of friendships, uh, that uh, relationships. This was much more important than anything else. Absolutely. Uh, and so I started small again from nothing, but surrounded by this wonderful community that, that, uh, that I was living in, in, in Mill Valley in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but yeah, I, I can relate to that. And um, so this is great. So a couple more questions and then we can wrap up. Um, sure. So I asked you uh, in the preparation for this interview to talk about something you do on a regular or even a, an irregular basis that helps you to be successful and maybe you've touched on it already mm -hmm. yeah like my answer would be curiosity um being curious about things and not presuming that you have all the answers is super helpful 
when you're able to expose yourself to things, people, and ideas that you're unfamiliar with, it helps you to break through your own barriers. And we all have barriers. We have barriers that society puts on us, our family puts on us, we put on ourselves. We're probably the worst ones at putting crap on ourselves. But you can push through that by being curious and by committing to being a lifelong learner. It doesn't matter if you learn through podcasts, through YouTube, through reading, just commit to learning. That has, I think, I would not have been able to get through what I have gotten through without that kind of attitude and mindset. Brilliant. Okay, final question. Um, right. So based on all of your, all that you've been through, your life to date and your heroic journey, what are the one or two most important pieces of advice that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, going in the you already, By the way, you've already given some real nuggets of gold. <laughs> half hour or so. If anybody can take anything useful from what I have to say, I am humbled and very, very happy. So, I mean, that's the whole point of these conversations, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But um, what I would say in vain with what I was saying previously is don't believe everything that you think. Learn, expose your own ignorance to yourself, if you can, more than anything else. And use that knowledge to help you and others be better, be wiser, be more integrated, be more authentic. That's my two cents. That's fantastic. And if I may um, humbly add to what you just said, please, if, if you do that, my suggestion is that you um, avoid pitfalls of being righteous. Yeah. Having to be right and other people being wrong. Uh, pr the false pride, hubris, uh, defensiveness. I could go on. Yes. It makes you such a much better human being if you're open-minded and willing to hear other points of view, willing to get new information and not assume that what you think all the time is the right thing. Is yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. Well, we I have we yeah. have some answers, but we don't have the final answer. So let's have a bit of humility about well, ourselves. Some of us do, but that's an answer. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean. Do we, do we ever know everything? No, I don't think so. But it's all a mystery ultimately. But uh, yeah, this is great. I mean, thank you so much. This has been a brilliant conversation. Thank I you so much, Michael. You. Oh, you're very it's, been, it's, it's been my pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. And uh, if you'd like, if anyone listening would like to uh, share this with their friends and, you know, do the social media thing, we'd be delighted. I think Absolutely. there's a lot of great stuff that uh, we've heard from Carmen in, uh, in this interview. Uh, so please feel free to share it around. And uh, once again, Carmen, I want to, before we sign off, and I see you uh, sometime down the road. Sure. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you so much. Have a, an enjoyable week. Thank you. Same to you, Michael. All, All right. the best. Bye-bye.